Well, good morning, and uh, welcome to Christ Community and seniors and parents. Congratulations. Um, you know, it's a big, big day in your life, so um, I want to congratulate you. My name is Tom Nelson, and welcome to the Leewood Campus. And I was thinking as I was uh, observing parents with college students that a message on financial distress is appropriate today. <laughs> um, Some of you might be feeling that, and the message this morning captures that. Financial distress can happen to all of us. Um, It's, uh, you know, just a matter of time for many of us. I remember growing up as a kid, uh, learning early on that, you know, hard times happen. Uh, My father died when I was young, and uh, that left my mom to be a single parent raising seven children on a single parent's income. And uh, during family reunions today, or rebellions is what we call them, um, we talk about the old days as the hard times, and we uh, think back to what we call orphan hot dish. Uh, This was a creative cuisine that took one can of mushroom soup and anything else in the cupboard and was our dinner. And we also reflect on hand-me-downs, you know, seven kids, (laughs) you know, you start handing the stuff down. And I learned early on that... Financial distress can happen to all of us. And my mom encountered different contexts for being in a very economic, vulnerable place as a single parent. Some of you might relate to this. I might be there right now. Uh, I remember people in our church family, particularly, who'd stop by every now and then and bring something to my mom and say, you know, we just had too much of this. (laughs) Uh, Groceries or whatever. It was amazing to see that. But I also remember a fast-talking used car salesman. Now, they, they're often, you know, treated poorly. I'm sure they're wonderful used car or formerly owned vehicle salespeople, right? But this person was actually a part of our faith community, fast-talking, great salesperson that sold my mom a used car that was truly a lemon. And uh, he clearly knew that. Hard times can happen to all of us. I remember after the 2008 financial meltdown, most of us experienced that and knew that the whole system was on um, vapor. And I remember a few months after 2008 hit in the Great Recession, we call it today, that I was chatting with a friend of mine at Christian Fellowship Baptist Church, our sister church in the urban core. And uh, I was asking him how his business was doing. And he runs a hair salon in the urban community, a dear friend. And I went up to him from my arm, I said, how's it going with this economic mess? You know, people were laying people off right and left, and he said to me, he says, well, um, it's not going very good, Tom. He said, my business is way down. And I said, well, why is that? He said, well, in the past, my clients used to come in to get their hair cut every three weeks. And he said, since the meltdown, they come in every six weeks. And he said, for many of them, the difference is either getting my hair cut and looking good or buying groceries that week. And I said to him, I said, hard times, huh? And he said to me, yeah, hard times. Hard times can hit all of us. Now, I don't think many of us this morning can relate perhaps to that story directly. Maybe we can. But for most of us who have more privilege and economic power, 
That usually isn't the decision we have to make every week, whether we are going to feed our family or get our hair cut. But financial distress can hit all of us. It can be a loss of a job, an extended time of unemployment, when the bills just keep coming. Some of us have been there. It can be the failure of a business we have sunk every bit of our resources in. It can be huge medical bills that put us in a chapter 11 reality. It can be a change of marital status. One of the greatest indicators of poverty is often a single parent dynamic in our culture. It can be outliving our resources in retirement. And as kids or teenagers, we know, some of us know what it's like to live in a home where there's financial distress, where our parents lose a job, when we are not able to get the car we want or to have the nice shoes we want or to go on the vacation we want or do things with our friends. And so the question for all of us today, I think, is when hard times hit, how do we respond? How should we respond? And what do hard times call for? I find it amazing that hard times have always been with us. And when we go back to the 6th century B.C., that's a long time ago, in the book of Nehemiah, we find ourselves in a place of hard times. If you have your Bible, I'd like you to open up to the book of Nehemiah. And if you're visiting, we have been walking through the Bible all this year, but we are in the book of Nehemiah. Let's set the context because we're going to press into the text read for us this morning, Nehemiah 5. Now, as we enter back into the story of Nehemiah, as we look at hard times hitting them, let's think back, first of all, that under Nehemiah's wise leadership, the wall is being rebuilt in Jerusalem, but they face, remember, internal and external challenges. But when we come to Nehemiah 5, they face a challenge that stops them dead in their tracks. Perhaps the greatest challenge to the restoration of a people and a place is hard economic times, and they hit with a vengeance. Now, if you turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 5, I want you to follow along the literary structure of this chapter. The Hebrew text flows around a threefold story. It's very important to the structure and integrity of the Hebrew text. It goes like this. And the way to remember this is Nehemiah paints this memoir, this personal memoir, and he develops this story of chapter 5 in a threefold progression. First, he says, hard times happen. Secondly, he says, hard truths need telling. And third, he says, heart transformation can happen. So the flow of the text and the flow of the conversation, the scaffolding of our conversation this morning is to look first at hard times, then hard truths, and hard transformations. So let's dive in first to the first movement of the literary progression of Nehemiah 5. First, we see that hard times hit, and this is how Nehemiah presents chapter 5 to us. He paints an arresting picture of the heart of financial distress. Look at verse 1. Now, there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against the Jewish brothers. Now, I want you to notice that the Hebrew reader would have picked up right away on a very intense verb, the great outcry. Do you see that in English? And it would make a connection immediately. This word is not used real often, but it connects to another story. So, right away, they would have remembered it. 
Exodus 3.9, when God's covenant people in Egypt are under the bondage of economic exploitation and slavery, they are being enslaved by their Egyptian taskmasters. They are doing backbreaking work. And they are crying out physically, emotionally, spiritually for great oppression. It is a picture of God's covenant people being under economic exploitation and oppression from those outside. But if that's bad, Imagine what it's like to be enslaved by those who are on the inside. Nehemiah uses the same word, that there's this great outcry because of oppression. Now, notice in verses 1 through 5, and verse 1 tells us that the wives get in on it, and it's against their Jewish brothers, particularly their cry, not Egyptian taskmasters. So the severity of this, the emotional rendering of this, grabs the reader and says, this is wrong, right from the beginning. But notice, Nehemiah says, in verses 1 through 5, he paints this picture of the perfect economic storm. We hear about the perfect storm, right? When all the forces come together to swamp us, overwhelming. And here we have a perfect economic storm painted for us. What do we mean by that? Now, if you have your Bible open, you'll notice that he paints the storm. First, he will tell us that there is a severe famine, which means in this economic context that the prices of food were skyrocketing because food was little and far between. But not only famine or high inflation is the idea in our economic context, there's also exorbitantly high taxes being levied on them by the Persian government. Anybody relate to high taxes? So you have prices shooting up, high taxes by the government, but not only that. You have high interest being charged on loans by the nobles and officials. So follow along. You imagine the perfect storm? This is stress on steroids, y'all. This is what he paints. Famine, a shortage of food and high prices, exorbitantly high Persian taxes, high interest on the loans. But notice also that which is not said but understood. And the reason the wives are complaining because they're doing all the work at home. They're doing the man's work too while the men are working on the wall. So there's a labor shortage in the fields. So you have four things that are converging at once. Financial distress on steroids. Famine, high taxes, high interest, and a labor shortage. No wonder they're screaming foul. Now, you'll also notice with your Bible open in verses 1 through 5 that Nehemiah paints a picture of three categories of economic distress or economic people. You will notice in your English text the, the refrain, there were those. Do you see that? There were those in verse 2, then 3, and then 4. What's going on here? Well, first, there were those who were most economically vulnerable, the poorest of the poor, who are literally facing malnutrition. But secondly, there were those who are landowners, who are more wealthy, who are land-rich but cash-poor. And the text tells us they were having to mortgage their property, which was their future ability for economic vitality, to live now. They were mortgaging their future to survive now. That's the second group. And then the third group are those across the economic spectrum who are paying high Persian taxes and they are having to put up their children as indentured servants or slave, slaves. Kids, can you imagine? Or teenagers, can you imagine? 
if uh, your parents lost their job and, and you just didn't have to only go to work at Starbucks, but you had to sell yourself into slavery for years. See, that's the picture. And I find it interesting that high taxes are emphasized here. Because <laughs> high taxes can be a pain for everyone. Any amens there? You don't have to be a Baptist to say amen on that. Some of you survived April 15th. Some of you have extensions, right? You're trying to figure out how to pay those taxes. Uh, But dealing with the IRS is not slavery, in a sense, but dealing with with the IRS is not an easy thing. Have you ever faced the wrath of the IRS? I know there are important people that collect taxes, and being a part of the IRS is not bad. So I don't want emails on that if you're a part of the IRS. But sometimes the IRS can really put us on stress. I'll never forget last year... I went home one day, and there was a bunch of snail mail on my debts. That's where Liz puts it, my sweet bride of 31 years. We just celebrated our 31th anniversary this week, so it's pretty cool. Um, and she, she set this stack of mail, you know? And I usually don't get to my mail right away. And I usually have to have sort of the right constitution to handle my mail. <laughs> you know, I don't, maybe you're like the person, you're the person, like, you get your snail mail, you go, oh, yeah, cool, cool, cool. You open up. For me, it's like bills. Uh, or bad news shows my pessimism. So however you open your mail is your optimist or pessimist. I'm a pessimist in my mail. So I waited for a while. Uh, it was probably my day off, and I looked through the stack, and right there on the left-hand corner was the Internal Revenue Service. Now, when you get a letter from the IRS, does that make your day? <laughs> Unbelievable. I was like, my blood pressure shot up. I was hoping it was just, you know, some little thing. I opened it up and it said, basically, you owe taxes and you have penalties and interest from two years ago. How do you feel at that moment? (laughs) Just want to go, praise the Lord. (laughs) I was carnal as could be. I mean, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Liz said, calm down, calm down. It's going to be okay. Well, the long story of it is, is that I knew I was right. I knew I have an accountant. I pay him a lot of money to keep me integral. I knew we were right. But it took six months to convince the IRS that we were right. Finally, it was resolved. But for weeks, I felt like the IRS, the sword of Damocles, hanging over with a horsehair over my life. Financial distress can come from many different angles, including high taxes. And this is the picture we have here. See, everyone is under stress, right, in Nehemiah's time? All those categories. But there's a small group of people who are not in stress at all. They're not emptying their pockets. They are padding them. And... They're getting off like bandits. Nehemiah comes unglued. Look at verses 6 through 7. He says, I was very angry. And, and the text is he was ticked off. When I heard their outcry in these words, and I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials, and I said to them, you are exacting interest each from your brother. And I held a great assembly against them. <laughs> Nehemiah calls these leaders out. He outs them because they are financially exploiting people in distress. Not only for short-term gain, but long-term power. 
Now, I want you to notice something going on in the text that we often miss because Nehemiah calls him out for two things. First is charging interest to fellow Jews, which was prohibited in the Old Testament. So, like, this is like out. <laughs> They're like busted. But he doesn't just out them for charging interest. He outs them for giving pledged loans, which is like collateral, okay? Collateral loans or giving loans was permitted in the Old Testament. It was permitted biblically, and it was culturally acceptable. But they are doing this to oppress the people. And of course they knew better. A couple centuries before, the prophet Amos had described the dark side of power and God's hatred of economic exploitation. But the dark side of power and greed have a way of blinding all of us to economic exploitation of others. Amos had said centuries before, God's wrath is on this. He said, don't trample on the poor. And that's what these guys were doing. Now, I want you to notice that there is a deep relationship between spiritual reality and material reality. Because the physical famine revealed the spiritual famine in their hearts. Hard times often expose some very hard hearts. See, economics matters to God, and it matters to us, or at least it should. Economic exploitation is a grave injustice which God hates. He doesn't stutter about that. See, we were created with community in mind. We are economic creatures who live in an economic world, and economic flourishing and human flourishing are related. They matter. In fact, isn't it interesting? We get uh, the Greek word, or the English word economics, from a Greek word that's brought together, two words, oikonomia, which means household stewardship. That economics at its very basis is stewardship. It is not just supply and demand or curves or statistics. It is about stewarding God's resources, about loving our neighbors and adding value to them. It is about the great commandment of loving our neighbor. See, economics is a moral, relational, and cultural system of human work that creates wealth and adds values to others and cares for others and meets needs. And what we understand in this text is the ultimate economic bottom line is not profit. It is love. See, the Bible does not prohibit the granting of loans, nor does it prohibit making a profit. That's important in the economic system. But hear me carefully. It condemns the greed that seeks a profit at the expense of the economically vulnerable. And that's what's going on here. See, the depth of poverty and the perfect financial storm here in Nehemiah 5 called not for greater personal gain, but greater generosity of heart. So what do hard times call for in our lives when we face financial distress or a community or a nation or a world? They call for generous hearts. 
Hearing the outcry of, outcry of God's people, Nehemiah confronts the economically powerful with some very hard-hitting truths. Look with me at verses 6 through 11. In this section, we see the hard truths. Nehemiah says, I'm really ticked off about this. In fact, in verse 7, there's this curious Hebrew phrase that is translated in English that doesn't work. You know, we go from one language to another. We, we lack this correspondence. And the English translators try to grasp this. I took counsel with myself. I, I pondered them in my mind. You know, well, that's awkward. The way to understand this is that Nehemiah called a timeout. He put himself in timeout, at least his tongue. You know, kids, when you're parents, you do something wrong and they put you in timeout. Or teenagers, you remember when that happened, right? Timeout is a pretty good deal. Just cool down when things are out of control. Nehemiah puts himself in timeout. Remember, he's very angry. I mean, very, very angry is the text. So Nehemiah wisely calls a quick timeout, lets his head catch up to his heart. And when you and I are called to give hard truths to someone or others, we better let our head catch up to our heart. I'm reminded of the teenager who was impressed with his grandpa and grandma's marriage. They had celebrated 45 years of marriage. That's pretty awesome. So he said to his grandpa, he says, Gramps, what's the secret of your marriage? How'd you do it? And he, grandpa paused a minute and he said, you know, when I think back, your grandma and I had some really moments of, well, we disagreed a lot. And right when we were about to get in a fight, the first thing I do is I go for a long walk. And he looked at his grandson. And he says, the secret to a good marriage is I've largely lived an outdoor life. <laughs> this is where Nehemiah is. He takes a long walk. I can imagine to cool off because he understands God's hatred for economic exploitation of others. He's undone but he has to think clearly. The nobles, the leaders, are patting their pockets on the poor. They're violating the Old Testament law that was clear against charging interest for a fellow Jew. And Nehemiah drives this point home in verse 9. He says, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of, our nation, of the nations of our enemies? See, they are not pulling the wool over Nehemiah's eyes. The people's eyes are most importantly God's eyes. Notice this phrase, the fear of God. That's kind of a hard phrase. It's twice in the chapter. When we think of fear of God, we think of often, you know, the idea of being scared from someone, like a bully at school. But the fear of God here is more like being accountable to like a boss at work. What these leaders, nobles, and officials were missing is that they had a vertical accountability to God, and God was watching. God knew they were trampling on the poor. And notice the text says the nations were watching too. <laughs> They're seeing the hypocrisy of God's people. 
When they worship on Sunday and say, oh, we love Jesus, and then on Monday they're involved with economic exploitation and not caring for the poor. Can't you imagine? Remember we met what I call the three stooges, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem <laughs> earlier, if you've been a part of this series. Can you imagine those guys getting on the bandwagon? Nah, 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 right? That's what's going on. And God is being mocked because of his people's hypocrisy. Now, after confronting these exploitative, exploitative leaders, Nehemiah calls them to make some big changes. And I want you to notice something verse 10. If you have your Bible open, this is really amazing transparency. Nehemiah says, I was a part of this. <laughs> and if we understand, Nehemiah was, his history was a part of a wealthy family in Jerusalem. And Nehemiah recognizes that systemically he's responsible as well because they have been giving loans in a time when they should be giving gifts. And he says to them, let's stop charging interest. And notice in verse 11, Nehemiah raises the bar of moral responsibility. Do you see this? He urges the leaders to return everything they have taken as collateral loans. What is collateral? Collateral is when you give a loan or you take a loan out, you assign some other asset to guarantee you're going to pay the loan. And if you don't pay the loan, they take it. And that's what's going on here. And that was permissible under Old Testament law. And there's an important principle here. Nehemiah confronts what is culturally acceptable but morally wrong. Not just what was prohibited in the Scriptures, but that which was morally wrong that was culturally permissible. And see, there are injustices that we need to care about that are culturally and legally permissible but exploit or harm the vulnerable and are morally wrong for the Christian Because something is deemed legal does not necessarily mean it is morally right. In our own city, we have businesses that prey off the most vulnerable. An example are payday loans, who charge exorbitant interest, much different than if I went to Capital Federal or whatever to get a loan. High fees and high interest to the most desperate that have to have cash right away because they're so poor. It's legal. But is it morally right? This past week, the world stood, I hope, in horror about the Bangladesh factory that collapsed and killed all these people working in this garment industry. The Wall Street Journal talked about sweatshop labor in an article I commend to you, it's called The Global Garment Trail, documenting all the cost-cutting and neglect of the owners of this building. <laughs> They're numbing indifference and callous indifference for their employees' safety and well-being. One of the owners, I can't say his name. It's too hard for me to say it. I don't know how to say it. You ever had that situation? But here's what he's quoted as saying. There's money in the air. You just need to know how to grab it. See, while laws and legal advocacy and government oversight are important, Nehemiah understood that the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. And he goes right to the heart in verses 12 through 19. Heart transformation is needed if we capture God's heart against economic exploitation and the abuse of power. 
In verse 12, we read, they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. I mean, that's a pastor's dream, right? You preach a message, and everyone goes, yeah, we'll do it. It's a good thing this morning. You want to apply that? And they called the priests and made them swear to do as they permitted. Don't you love this picture? It's a picture of repentance. There are fruits of repentance. They not only stop charging interest, they do which is not legally demanding, but morally right. They give back all the collateral loans. Do you see that? Repentance is not just conformity to the law or cultural acceptability. It is conformity to what God says is morally right. Nehemiah raises the bar and the repentance reflects it. Nehemiah calls the priest in. Don't you love that? Let's just be accountable here. What a great ending to the story in verse 13. They keep their promises. They're joyful, right? But it's not the ending of the story. Don't you find that surprising? Scholars are all over the place. What, what, is these, what are these six verses doing here at the end of chapter 5? The greatest Hebrew scholar, what is, what is going on here? Like, did Nehemiah just kind of pop this in? Not on your life. Nehemiah adds these six transparent verses, not for a sense of self-promotion, but for leadership example. He describes his own generosity to the people. Hard times meant sacrifice for him too. As a governor, he wasn't about to pat his pockets. He opened his pockets and even gave up his paycheck. Hard financial times require and call for generous hearts and sacrifice. Nehemiah not only displays great generosity, I want you to notice he displays the proper use of power. One of the most distinguishing marks of the true Christian disciple is how we deal with power that we have been given. What is power? Listen, I saw Iron Man 3 yesterday. <laughs> A lot of power in our superheroes. I mean, there's stuff being destroyed everywhere. But what is power? Power is the ability or the capacity to influence someone or something to conform to our will. All of us have it by our very created nature. Sociologist James Hunter in his book To Change the World says this. I think I have it here. It's important to grasp what he's saying. What has been argued from anthropology can be argued straightforwardly from theology. To be made in the image of God and to be charged with the task of working in the a cultivating, preserving, protecting creation is to possess power. The creation mandate then is to use that power in the world in ways that reflect God's intention. Most of us here this morning have a great deal of power by the very nature of our privilege. Our family backgrounds, our education, our economic status, Everyone has a certain degree of power, but many of us have been given high gifts of power. And like all gifts, whether they are a talent for art or music, athletics, wealth creation, power is a gift that needs to be stewarded well. But power like pleasure, money, fame can be a corrupting idol in our heart. That's why Lord Acton said the great dictum, 
power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I think the way we want to think about power, we all have it, is power is a hot potato that must be handled carefully lest we get burned by it. One of the great antidotes to the abuse of power, the dark side of power, is to share it generously with others. Whether that's wealth, fame, positions, organizations. Jesus told his disciples in Mark 10 that Christians are different when it comes to power, fundamentally. It's not about lording it over people, it's about serving them. And the world says, hey, use your power, but don't hurt anybody. What does Jesus say? It's not just not hurting someone, it's loving them. The power you've been given is to love God and love others. That's what the great commandment means. So how do we apply this message? I want to suggest three quick takeaways for your reflection. First, as we have already alluded to, this text tells us that power is a gift to steward well. It is. So let me ask you, everybody with me? What has God entrusted to you? What has God put in your hands that you have control and responsibility over? Financial resources? Wealth? Positions of influence in your business or profession. Maybe you are the captain of your sports team at school. And you have a lot of influence or your club. What about your intellectual gifts, your artistic talents, your relational networks? Are you stewarding your power well? Are you using this power to help others flourish? and to further the gospel, and to promote the common good. See, Nehemiah reminds us that one of the most dependable indicators of restored people is that they restore others. Secondly, economic injustice is an evil to confront boldly. It's not about just taking on in a crusade level. It is much more important to deal with the numbing indifference that we often have toward economic exploitation and injustice. See, one of the deepest hatreds is a callous indifference. Do we care about economic injustice and exploitation? Do our prayers reflect the longing in Amos 5.24, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream? Is there an economic injustice that God is calling you to address and to make a difference in the world? If you're younger here this morning, is God putting in your heart some injustice that you are to dedicate your life to address? For those of you who are in an economic situation of strength, one of the greatest needs in our time, one of the cries of the world is job creation. Jobs, jobs, jobs. It's not just about giving a handout. It's about a hand up. 
Some of us are called to help develop entrepreneur zones and economic development. What most economically disadvantaged people need today is not a gift but a good job. This is not a call just for the government. This is a call for the church for such a time as this. We have an extraordinary opportunity. Third, repentance comes before restoration. Nehemiah confronted economic injustice, y'all, at a heart level. That's where it has to start. Economic distress exposes a fatal heart condition. And that is financial famine often reveals spiritual famine exposing what we truly treasure. Jesus says, where you put your treasure, your heart follows. Do you notice in the story of Nehemiah there's a progression? That is, repentance comes before restoration of a place and a people. The wall is first restored, which we've seen. Now the weak are restored, which we are now looking at. And next week we're going to see, then God's people's worship are restored. Don't forget the order. Repentance horizontally of injustice comes before God visits his people. And spiritual awakening. So what do hard times call for? They call for sacrificial, repentant, and generous hearts. The book of Nehemiah points us, remember we said earlier, Nehemiah means the comfort of God, the God who comforts. Nehemiah points us to Jesus, the one who had all power, but who emptied himself, gave up that power to a sin-ravaged planet on a rescue mission. The one whose open hands of sacrificial generosity led to pierced hands of agony. He was nailed to the Roman cross for your sin and mine. Jesus shed his innocent blood as an atoning sacrifice for you and me. And John says, we love each other. Why? Because he first loved us. We are generous to others because Jesus has been generous to us. Have we embraced the gospel? Have we found forgiveness and new life as a gift of his grace? And are we connecting our worship vertically with our horizontal responsibility in a fallen world? Do we care? Do we have God's heart for the plight of others? I think it's appropriate that in our response we gather around the Holy Communion table this morning. Remembering together Jesus' use of power and how he emptied himself, laid down his life for you and me. I want you to hear as we prepare and continue to worship the Apostle Paul's preparatory words for Holy Communion. Listen to 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says, For I received from the Lord, which I also delivered to you, that Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And now notice what Paul says. We often stop there. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. And then he says, let a person examine themselves and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Let's bow our heads and our hearts as we have a moment of quiet before our holy God. What is the Holy Spirit saying to you this morning? What areas of repentance and confession is he prompting you to? Let's be still before the Lord. Heavenly Father, wherever each one of us are before you this morning, Holy Spirit, speak into where we need to hear your voice. May we come to you with repentant hearts and may we find restoration and grace that if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, now bless the elements of the bread and the vine. Renew our hearts and minds for faithful service for you this week as we remember you together. In Jesus' name, amen.